like i look at my portfolio now i'm like oh yeah this is it's really taken me a few years to get here i think it's easier to, as a designer essentially because you have more pieces you can affect and there's more like um more more pins that you can put on the board you know as as an illustrator it's very specific and it's also really based in style as well and they're coming to you because you have a specific math problem and you like to or you have a, an equation that you know how to solve a variety of problems with if that makes any sense so with design it's you know you're building a different type of equation almost every single time especially you know when it comes to like higher level like brand identity which is like its own like really wild rubric of pie to solve i know i'm just mixing my my data metaphors but yeah there's so many other opportunities to to really experiment and play but as long as you're building out a interesting system hey what's up everyone welcome to works in process the podcast about uncovering creative methodologies from people doing inspiring work in each episode whether i'm talking to a designer an educator or an entrepreneur we learn how the hows and whys behind what they do through experiences and determination, my guests explore the techniques and inspiration that have helped them navigate their creative careers. I'm your host, designer and educator George Garasega Jr., and join me as I continue to elevate the creative process by shifting the focus to how we work over what we produce. On today's episode, I want to welcome Rich Too. Rich is a first-generation Filipino-American and award-winning designer and artist residing in Brooklyn, New York. Currently, he is the group creative director at Jones Noel Ritchie and has previously held the roles at MTV Entertainment and Viacom CBS and Nike. In addition, he hosts the Webby Honoree podcast, First Generation Burden, which focuses on the intersectionality and diversity within the creative industry. And he's the co-founder of the Colorful Grant with The One Club, dedicated to creating opportunities for early stage BIPOC creatives. Rich is a graduate of SVA's Illustration as Visual Essay program and received the ADC Young Guns Award, which recognizes the world's best creatives under 30. Creatively, his focus is on emerging audiences and energetic brands that benefit from the eclectic and unique point of view. Hey, Rich. Welcome to the Works and Process Podcast. Hey, George. Hey, man. Thank you so much for joining me today at CUNY's New York City College of Technology in Brooklyn. I cannot wait to talk to you about the First Gen Podcast, your Nike drops, the MTV <laughs> you know, Music Video Awards. Before yeah. we do that, I want to dive in and clear your mind. So I like to start every episode with a fun icebreaker. You ready? Yeah. Cool. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Eggs or cereal? Eggs. Artist or designer? Artist. Insights or opportunity? Opportunity. BIPOC or POC? Ooh. I think they're both in perfect terms. BIPOC by virtue of addressing various communities. Awesome. <laughs> I like how one of them, I always make somebody think, they go, what? Oh, wait. I yeah. thought this was going to be easy. <laughs> and now some quick word associations, right? Just the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear these words. Creativity. Always. Determination. Yep. Business. Pleasure. Failure. Inevitable. <laughs> I know, right? Community. Love. Education. Brain. Mistakes. Mm, small and big. Skills. Hands. History. Feature. Opportunity. Preparedness. Accessibility. Necessary. Future. History? I feel like we're running in circles. <laughs> <laughs> Process. Important. Right? I just love doing this. I love that you're actually, you know, closing your eyes and kind of like, you know, thinking about not like just clearing yeah. your mind, actually. 
but I like just kind of using this as a method to kind of just start every episode fresh for sure and not go into with any preconceived notions of what this is supposed to be right because also it's worth noting that we're doing this live and we've also probably had like full days we're recording this in the evening so I think it's good as an exercise to just completely clear my mind. Exactly. Right. So this is the first one I'm doing actually, you know, live with Rich next to me instead yeah. of being on a Zoom call, which is awesome. So it's great that we're both in New York City and in the Brooklyn area. We can get to like link up. So I appreciate that. Absolutely. That's what's up. Yeah. We heard a lot about you in your bio, right? At the top of the show and get a sneak peek of what you've done. But now let's find out about your origin story. Let's give the listeners a glimpse into how you were introduced into art and design. So where'd you grow up and were you creative as a kid? So I grew up in South Orange, New Jersey. Jersey. Yeah, there you go. Jersey boy in the house. <laughs> and yeah, I was always creative. Like my father was an architect and he he was an architect too from, for almost 30, 40 years of his life, right? Oh, wow. And that was his way of just communicating with the world. And he helped build a lot of important infrastructural buildings in the Tri-State area from like, you know, schools, hospitals, jails, even say what you will, but it was like a lot of governmental type of structures that he helped create. But, you know, that meant he was working all the time because there was always work to do. Mm-hmm. If you're ever around an architect, they have a very specific way of drawings, very much like a continuous line type of draw. I remember his process pre-AutoCAD. So he was, I spent, or he spent a lot of his days when I was a young child hunched over a drawing desk, you know, with very long rulers, a lot of tools at his disposal. And, uh, you know, he kind of acclimated me into that world or it helped familiarize me with a lot of that creative process. Mm -hmm. So when I started to, you know, show a lot of skills in that way, where I was essentially drawing Ninja Turtles as like an eight-year-old. And then I I have that first drawing of Leonardo. I'm like, hey, wow, that actually looks like my toy. My dad's like, yeah, that actually does look like your toy. You know, like there was a lot of support there, which is great. And he brought me to a lot of hobby shops, like comic book shops. I spent Mm -hmm. a lot of my youth reading sequential imagery and like having that be a part of the way I understand like a narrative process. And I'm really grateful to him for that. So Long story short, I kind of took myself for granted, actually, when it came to like wanting to do something creative as a career. So I went to undergrad, and I love Rutgers, by the way, shout out to Rutgers. So I went to Rutgers without the intent of doing, exploring a creative career. I had a great time, though, I will say. It was a state school. We were doing what we got to do. And then, or it was like essentially a party school. Yeah, uh, Rutgers is a party school. Rutgers is a party school. Shout out to uh, the A-Bus and Bush Campus. College F. So I graduated with an undergrad degree in communication and I minored in psychology. And I knew I wanted to take that into some sort of creative world, but I just didn't have the fundamentals. And I didn't give myself the infrastructure of like a creative process and also surrounding myself with the creative community. So I reached out to my brother-in-law, Jason Atienza, who is also a former Young Gun winner and like is very prolific in advertising as well as an artist. He's great. And at the time, he had spent many, many years at BBDO as an art director, and he graduated from School of Visual Arts. And he told me, he's like, hey, Rachel, if you're really serious about pursuing this, here's a couple ways you could do it. So I took a bunch of night classes, continuing education classes, School of Visual Arts for three years. I basically never stopped going to school. During the daytime, I was a, a kiosk manager at Willowbrook Mall in New Jersey on Route 46. Or I was a... Just in case nobody knows. Just in case no one knows where Willowbrook Mall in New Jersey is with a defunct XM satellite radio kiosk where I was a manager at. So yeah, I was there or I was a substitute teacher actually at a high school 
Columbia High School in Maplewood, South Orange, where SZA went to actually, and Lauren Hill. SZA was actually a student. Solana Rowe was a student when I was a substitute teacher. I saw her a lot. And I put together a portfolio that consisted of design work, illustration work. I had a lot of affinity towards illustration. I had so much love for illustration. So that was like my easiest way, my fastest way in. Not easy. Nothing's easy. And then I was able to parlay that into a first couple of pieces, published pieces in the New York Times called Stephen Heller within the last six months of his tenure at the Times when he was still doing the book review. And he was willing to see almost any portfolio. He saw my portfolio. He basically, you know, shit on 90% of it, thought 10% of it was good. And he said, hey, well, Rich, you know, stay by your email. Tomorrow, I'll, I'll let you know if something comes in. And then he had two spot illustrations for me. And then I was off to the races. And then I parlayed a lot of that work into a portfolio to get me into a master's program at School of Visual Arts with Marshall Arisman, Mirko Illich, see Carol Fabricatori, a lot of awesome legends and got to really take myself seriously when it came to this creative journey. Mm -hmm. So I will say, you're also a podcast host. You've basically answered in sequential order <laughs> the next couple of things I was about to ask, you know, in your journey. And I didn't have to because you just kind of flowed through. And it seems like this idea of parlaying, right? Just using one thing to get to the next is yeah. something that you're doing. I mean, I just want to just, you know, put it out there that, you know, you just randomly called Stephen Heller while he's still at the Times. <laughs> and Stephen Heller is like 90% of your portfolio is crap. But yeah. I'm still going to give you a call. Heart beating out of my chest. But that was the time when you could just get a list of all the art directors and design directors from the New York Times. And then you could just cold call them. You could go to the Times at the This is 2006, by the way. So you could go to the Times in 2006 and like drop a bag of dog shit off. I'm like, here, this is my portfolio. Like in theory, <laughs> it, it, that's how open the door was. Right. And also Stephen, you know, kudos to him. I don't know whether it was just by virtue of his tenure or by virtue of his trust in emerging artists, because I think he's been great about that through the course of his career. He had a lot of like willingness to experiment and give someone a chance. Mm -hmm. And that was always, I was always super appreciative of that, even though it's weird whenever I see him to thank him, <laughs> even though I've done it. But I'm like, oh, it's, he's done this to so many people. It's almost odd. I know. But I, I mean, I think it's got to be actually kind of invigorating to have that moment to say, I can actually pinpoint the person who's yeah. helped me in my career. And sometimes it's too late to say that to some people yeah. because you didn't realize it until they're gone, that they were the, really that impactful person. And the fact that you really want to say that, and even though it is odd, because like you said, de facto, he's been doing this and that's just kind of his MO, but mm -hmm. it's still, you're not taking it for granted. Yeah, absolutely. You know? So with all this parlaying and everything like that, when did you consider yourself a creative? Oh, it was in that illustration program. And that was a, I think about this a lot, actually. That was a gift that I had to give to myself. You know, like being able to say like, hey, I'm an artist. Hey, I'm a creative. Hey, I'm a designer. Those are all things that those are titles that are imaginary, fabricated concepts, say what you will. But you really have to like lean in in order to have the confidence to pursue the X, Y, Z, you know. So I really accepted my who I was, which was a creative problem solver, a creative thinker, an artist, a designer, like, you know, a whatever multi hyphenate X, Y, Z. That was something I, I really took on thanks to Marshall Arisman and that SVA as illustration program. So it seems like that visual essay program is really what got you thinking beyond just the doing yeah, of stuff. 
right? Yeah, they were really good about building in a fundamental process into your work where one, you know, you have two years to really think about your own creative juice and also like what your creative authorship is, but within this realm of illustration. Mm -hmm. But also they exposed you to so many other amazing creative thinkers who were also designers, design leaders, people that could critique your portfolio. So you were forced out of your own mental bubble in order to essentially think about your work from so many other different angles. They were really great about essentially testing you every day, challenging really? you all the time. Wow. That seems like such a, a great way, almost like kind of throwing you in the pool and see if you can swim, Yeah, you know, but with a group of people that are there to support you, right? Yeah. They're not going to let you drown. They're going to actually you know, let you right. make sure they are teaching you along the way, right? Yeah. So thank you for that kind of nice condensed version of how we're getting to where we are today. And I followed you a while on social and as an AIGA New York supporter, I've been mm -hmm. aware of what you've been up to, oh, yeah. right? Shout and out like, to uh, Stacey Panasopoulos. Oh, Stacey is love the Stacey. best. <laughs> Stacey is the best. Um, the executive director of AIGA New York. And like probably most people, right? I think they know you for your first gen podcast, mm -hmm. which we'll get into mainly because they see your face. Right. Mm. And as we know, designers are kind of like behind the scenes and we don't really like, you know, yeah. sign our work. So a lot of stuff that we do. Right. But over the years, what I've noticed is navigating the streets of New York, I cannot help but see something that you've worked on. Right. <laughs> Whether it's the Air Max 270s, the Mini Cooper collaboration, the MTV VMAs and so many things that I wasn't even aware of. Right. And I did notice something, even like my last guest where I interviewed Meg Lewis, bold colors are so tied to your visual style. Yes. Why? I think that was a confidence that took time to build. I think bold colors are usually a sign of some type of creative confidence, right? But also, simplicity is also a sign of creative confidence, too. I just happened to swing towards a certain end of the spectrum. In the beginning, I was very much about like an austere type of presence and, that's, and like trying to look for moments within the moments. Like I had very much a quieter aesthetic, I think, back in the day. But as my confidence grew, as, as, as I started to accumulate more work and kind of work with more clients, then it just became more about like energy, energy, energy. Mm -hmm. And then I started to find a lot of projects that were winning with energy and those started to resonate a bit more. And then, you know, kind of going into an entertainment world, even pre MTV, like when I was at Nike, that was about energy, energy. And even before Nike, I spent a couple of years as an art director at a at an entertainment firm that specialized in Broadway. Mm -hmm. So, if, you know, you look at Broadway, that's all energy, right? Look, the event happening on the stage, the narrative happening on the stage has to be communicated in so many different permutations, not just from front of house to like a singular poster with some sort of expressive design system associated with it. So that's when I started to unlock bright colors, bolder palette, as well as, you know, kind of being very forward with, you know, a typographic sensibility that also allows for to be messaging first. Mm -hmm. So for energy, is that for you, the project or client you're working on or what you bring to it? Or is it a symbiotic thing where like one feeds the other? I think it's the latter. It's yeah. I, before, you know, you're searching for like your, your clients, right? Like, who's in your strike zone of clientele that you can just continue to work with forever and ever. One of my earlier clients was, uh, you know, WBGO, the jazz station, 88.3? No. I mean, maybe if I just like by listening it, but not by the call letters. No, no worries. I can't. They're one of the oldest jazz stations in the Tri-State area, the base in Newark. And I worked with them early, early for a jazz symposium. Um, I did their identity for a jazz fest at Lincoln Center. 
right? So Lincoln Center Jazz, right? Like there's a lot of diagonals happening there, right? And it was very quiet, austere, illustrative, simple typographic sensibility, but that was aligned to jazz, essentially. Mm -hmm. But I was like, I remember at the time thinking, this isn't who I am, but I feel confident in my execution of this because of the pieces are working in a different type of concert, mm-hmm. right? But then, you know, you get more tricks up your sleeve and then you start working with clients that are asking for like more, 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 bigger, bolder, we need to stand out, X, Y, Z, then that like, you know, a place like MTV or the swoosh or let's say, you know, Reebok is a client I'm having a, a we're doing a special project with right now. Like they're looking for things that, that'll cut through the noise. Mm. To cut through the noise, right? So not the status quo, not the same old, same old. And obviously, you know, as somebody who's worked, I love it. You called it the swoosh. Yeah. (laughs) When you're in, you can now call Nike the swoosh. Yeah. It's it's no longer just the, you know, (laughs) Nike Inc. It's special code. It's just the swoosh. It's just the swoosh, right? Well, because it's super political over in Portland, over in Oregon, because it's the, it's the sportswear capital of America. Actually, if anyone of your listeners have a, has a wonderful opportunity to ever work at Nike, you know, on your first day, you will be greeted by one of the first 25 employees of Nike that will tell you the story firsthand of their journey through the swoosh. And then they'll tell you how jogging as a recreational activity came to Oregon, started in Oregon, and then that started the proliferation of sportswear and that entire culture. So North America Adidas is there. Who else is there? Under Armour has a presence there. Leaning, the Chinese um, footwear and sportswear companies have a presence there. And like the two meccas are probably Oregon and Boston. Boston has New Balance, Converse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a few others. It's very small, insular world where people just jump around in just these two places. So it's about lifestyle, not just about a brand. It's a vibe. Oh, it's definitely a vibe. It's absolutely a vibe. I know. When I, when I look at some of the stores and look at some of the stuff in the campus and things like that and what they're trying to produce, right? It's a total feeling yes. that you go through. And like you said, sitting with one of the 25 first employees, that's got to be yeah. like- They're all a bunch of hippies. Yeah. They're all a bunch of hippies that smoke weed. That's <laughs> literally all it is. Like when, I remember when I first moved there, that's when recreational weed was legalized. I was like, oh, this is all anyone does out here. So it seems like what you're talking about, right? Where, you know, obviously- Shifting from the jazz yeah. and that, and then clients starting to look to up the ante, look to be different. And what it seems to me is with this boldness, right, there's parts of you that are peeking out. Mm-hmm. It seems like those things are starting to say, well, cool, I can actually show myself in that work because they're all actually allowing me to go there. But how have you been able to do that in the work you create? Is it easier as an illustrator or a designer? Ooh, I think, well... It's funny because as an illustrator, like I don't really get to do a lot of projects now where I'm just solely an illustrator anymore, which is interesting, right? Because when I think about illustration now, I think a lot about like a more of a, like a, a symbiotic relationship with an art director that is also driving my work towards editorial, essentially. Okay. You know, and not, you know, which would be where I would have been as an illustrator, like in my early days, because I wasn't a, like a, a book person. I wasn't a children's book person. I wasn't also like a like the cover illustrator designer person, although I always wanted to be. That was always like kind of a, a fantasy of mine. But f- when it comes to the myself peeking through, that is like, I think the authorship coming through over time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in those first couple of gigs when you're thinking oh yeah is this where i can really take a stand here and 
and um, you know in, inject that that high energy color palette, or play with these neons, or play with these jewel tones, or have like a really bold headline um, headline typeface that that stands out in a sea of sand serifs that stands out like you know in the sea of helvetica wannabes out there (laughs) Uh, essentially like that's kind of where i've noticed like where it where it's all come together like i look at my portfolio now i'm like oh yeah this is it's really taken me a few years to get here i think it's easier as a designer essentially because you have more pieces you can affect and there's more like more pins that you can put on the board as an illustrator it's very specific and it's also really based in style as well Mm -hmm. and they're coming to you because you have a specific math problem and you like to or you have a an equation that you know how to solve a variety of problems with Mm -hmm. if that makes any sense right so with design it's you're building a different type of equation almost every single time right especially you know when it comes to like higher level like brand identity which is like its own like you know a, a really wild rubric of a pie to solve i know i'm just mixing my my data metaphors (laughs) but yeah like for that it's there there's so many other opportunities to to really experiment and play but Mm -hmm. as long as you're building out a interesting system well i like the idea that you're also delineating the fact that illustrator is kind of almost limiting in the fact of what you're getting from a cd or somebody and to say well we're picking you because of your style and Mm -hmm. this that so the input you have is very directed by somebody else yeah. Right? So the illustrator aspect is you don't really get a lot of chance to do that because it's already being told of why we are are coming to you. And it seems right. more that the aspect of you as artists where you get a little bit more to challenge that mm-hmm. and, and interject because you're both a creative as a designer, but also an artist right? who's able to make these decisions and work with clients versus somebody just hiring you for this little specific one thing you do. Right. And right. let's just use you for that. Right? right. You're kind of in, it seems like as an artist, you're in the room making these decisions with people. Yeah. Versus right. being told what to do. Yeah. As an illustrator, I was always inspired by the words. So that was always my starting point. As an artist, I like to, it's more process oriented for me where I'll just want to create something beautiful or something with impact. I won't even call them all, all my pieces beautiful necessarily, but something that will get a reaction out of people but also isn't intent to solve a problem necessarily. Mm-hmm. Then when I put my design hat on, I'm really trying to solve a problem for the client and do it with them. And then my authorship comes with the type of energy that I inject into it and like the essentially the personality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we see that. And when I show you in the show notes we're about to talk about, right, you collaborated with Minnie Cooper mm-hmm. to bring this, um, I think it's Hiraya concept to life yeah right it's a custom graphic that would go on the roof of a mini right and it's all about culture and symbolism and when you look at it it's really just it's an image of two overlapping circles forming an eye on a hand Mm -hmm. it's kind of similar to the you know hamsa right and as you mentioned in the video that's on your website that word means the fruit of one's hopes and dreams Mm -hmm. and so one as mini is an iconic brand that usually has the union jack on the top right yep. how are you able to get <laughs> your art on the top of those cars as an option for us to buy yeah well they called me so that was like step one get a call yeah oh right? well okay for them they were working with the american immigration council and they were also working with two other artists shane griffin at grif my homie shane and also shauna x so three artists that were either first gen immigrants or immigrants themselves. Shane came from Ireland. And 
it was just like you said, it was an opportunity to create a custom illustration or a custom piece that would sit in the, on the top of a mini, which usually has a union jack. So they want to give uh, provide a, an inclusive global thought of a new art piece that could be bought um, for, for new mini owners. Like it was a, a wonderful opportunity and also one of the easiest approvals I'd ever received. I was like, this is, <laughs> this is great. I wish it was like this all the time. And they were super gracious too. You know, they were really willing to go along with the process and I gave them a lot of sketches. Uh, but, uh, you know, the deeper meaning of, of the image was the palette, red, white, blue, yellow, like that's, uh, those colors are rooted in the Filipino flag. So I want to tell that story. And also the hand with the eye was really about identity and also finding oneself and acknowledging oneself. I mean, also, you know, even going down to the name of Haraya, like the fruit of uh, one's hopes and dreams, you know, it was really about self-actualization and paying respect and homage to your heritage, your family, your indigenous self even. And it's the kind of thing where all these reference points don't, wouldn't, always intersect naturally but when you add them all up into this one piece you can really go through the deeper levels of storytelling on top of having something that's you know aesthetically beautiful mm-hmm. very yeah i mean and you can see that it is is an aesthetically beautiful piece and i'm wondering why do you think mini was a good partner to self-actualize this stuff on that large of a state I think it was their partner with the american immigration council you know like when you believe in the client's cause then, you know, everything just kind of falls into place, right? And and also they weren't, and shout out to the team at uh, Pierre Odell, like that was the, the agency that helped put it together. And also shout out to Sunday Afternoon, like who, who rep me as an artist. Like everyone was really into the idea of individual authorship. And also it was no holds barred. They weren't being precious about anything. All I knew was that it was a blank canvas and there was a lot of opportunity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You just mentioned in- individual authorship. I think that's a great segue because I wanted to talk about the art installation you did for the VMAs. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. And when you look at that, right, I was researching and, and so was Orr, my research assistant. We're researching. About Shout out to Orr. <laughs> Shout out to Orr. And we were looking at that. And one of the things that struck me the most at your time doing with that was it's more of an art exhibition. And when you think of uh, the VMAs and, and the promotions they do, it's more about branding the event. It happened to be at the Barclays Center yep. that year, right? So it looks pandemic like- Pandemic year. Yeah, pandemic year, right? And it looks like you're curating this art exhibition in the subways, yeah. highlighting BIPOC creatives. Yeah. Very different than a normal traditional kind of advertising an event. Yes. It's individualizing authorship. Yes. How did that come about? Because I think that is something that your role being at MTV, did they allow you to shift that conversation? Is that something you bring to the table or is it because you just happen to know amazing artists that you're like, we're going to make this happen? It was a little bit of both. So the way that all came about, like it it was the craziest two months of my life, I think. And the long story short, so the Barclays Center, like you said, that was going to be the original location of the Video Music Awards hosted by Kiki Palmer in 2020, the year of the pandemic. And the way that those events are booked, they'll book the location and then they'll usually book a massive media buy right nearby. Right. So that particular year, Barclays and then the Atlantic Terminal right next to Barclays, which is a massive subway station for anyone who doesn't live in Brooklyn or New York City. So pandemic happens and then Barclays is shut down. But the buy, the ad buy 
for Atlantic Terminal was still valid. So in some checks, you don't just get back. Right. (laughs) You got to use it. You got to use it. So the show itself shifted production to a virtual production that happened. It was uh, it was by the water. Right. So it was by the water and it was not in front of an audience. But for Atlantic Terminal, there was opportunity there. So my SVP at the time, he reached out to me and was like, hey, Rich, we want to would you be down to help curate, put together a show, an art show that will celebrate the community, artists of color. We were trying to really do something that was mindful of the time because it was right after George Floyd, right after Breonna Taylor. And also the Barclays Center had become a place of protest. It was a place of respect to, it was like hollowed ground for, for community activists. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we were being very mindful. And also you hear all these horror stories of these brands with misguided attempts to reach out to the black and brown community at the time. I had a meeting about it on July 3rd, right before July 4th weekend. And I was like, shit, I have to think about this right now. And it was a long one, really going to spill a lot of tea here. I didn't want to work on the VMAs that year because you work on one tent pole and I'd done a couple of tent poles by this time. You give up your summer essentially. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's people need other opportunities. They want to work on them. And also, you know, it's kind of one of those things where do you want to sacrifice all of your time into this one massive thing? Mm-hmm. Right. So I didn't want to work on the VMAs. <laughs> so, but, you know, but I want to help out and also seem like an interesting opportunity. The way it was originally phrased to me by the team holistically was, hey, you want to do an art show? And I was like, okay, what does that even mean? And Hamilton had just released on Disney Plus. And Hamilton is an amazing show that makes me cry. So I spent a lot of the weekend crying watching Hamilton. On my podcast, I talk about like I'm in my early 40s. That's why I just cry all the time. So I I watched <laughs> I was watching Hamilton crying that weekend and really, you know, beating myself up over like what is this show gonna be? And I called Antonia Baker who uh, was the director of marketing at the time. Shout out to Antonia. And uh, she she was a Twitter for a number of years after she left MTV. I was like, hey, I need help with this. Like, is this something that that makes sense? How do we do this for the community? Everything's so crazy right now. And she was like, oh, hey, I, I was the one who put out the idea of doing an art show. I was like, oh my God, thank you. So, and also Antonia is black. She's amazing. She's brilliant. You know, she, and also she's outspoken. She's a leader. You know, she talking to her about it made me feel better about what we were bringing to the table, about what we were, you know, offering. So then it just became a question of, are we comfortable with the mechanics of how we're doing this? Are we comfortable with the the way we're approaching this, where it's like not going to be a brand play? We're going to downplay the brand. We're going to we're going to play up the community, play up. Thank you, New York, for another for being the host for us. Thank you to all the first responders. Right. It just became another type of situation. And then for the artists, reaching out to artists that could actually get us to work because we none of us could leave our houses. We couldn't even visit the site. So there was a hundred individual art placements in the subway alone that were all different unique things so like you ever walk in the subway and you'll just see like a massive wall cling Mm -hmm. like imagine like a hundred of those that were all specific built to the space right so we had to create a virtual pipeline that 
could get it to the MTA because the MTA also has to prove everything. So we worked with artists that were that lived in New York, but were also artists of color, artists that are also from an international world that like were, you know, there was, I was very adamant about making sure that it was representation at the forefront of this. Right. So, you know, homies like Kervin Brousseau, who at the time was at Vault 49, he came through. Bronson Farr, photographer. Avazar, photographer. Let's see, uh, Zapong Zhu. Who else? Black Power Barbie, Amika Cooper, my homegirl, like so many others that were just willing to contribute. Marco's Key, right? Mar- oh, Marco's Key. Yeah, exactly. So John and YL, and YL contributed a lot of work. So we, for a week, it was curating the artists, curating the art, and we were actually buying a lot of the art, essentially. So a lot of it was already pre-created, so really curating. Some artists and photographers wanted to make original pieces, and we were you know, open to that. Oh, Eugenia Mello also, who did the illustration to my podcast. She contributed a beautiful piece. So... They created digital pieces of art that could just go right to the design firm that was creating all the individual units. We did it all virtually over the course of 72 hours. Very fast. (laughs) Very fast. Very fast. And then that went right to the MTA for approval. Yeah, so we created a virtual pipeline so no one had to do a site visit, even though we wanted to. And it went right to the MTA for approval, and it was up for two weeks. We actually beat the opening of the MoMA by four days. We were the only public art space in town. And the way we built it was we were inspired by Art Basel, Freeze, The Armory Show, really wanted to make like a public art exhibit for locals who had to take the MTA for individuals that felt like they wanted to just be around art in a new space. And it was crazy. It was You'd walk around the subway and there would be like five people in it, but they'd be enthralled with the walls. Right. I mean, you, when you look at just the spaces that they were in and because Atlantic Terminal is so huge, but also right. so weirdly situated where, you know, you'd have one wall that's probably like five feet, but, but like 20 feet. Yes. Right? And you're like, and some walls that are kind of like normal, just subway buildings. Yeah. Right. So like you have to create these moments for all of that. And I think even the um, I remember the one of the the happy smiley face that YL created. Oh, yeah. You know, just yellow and the and Arabic words so and, this, and, you know, the smile. And, like, everything that just happens, with, it seems so personal because it was, like, a personal response to the space. Yes. And I think and that that's was intentional. Issue, yeah, and I think that's a, a great, like you said, even for those five people who had to be in the subway, right. it was kind of, like, a very personal effect for them. Right. And the fact that you beat MoMA as far as, like, an opening art space. Yeah. Oh, and I didn't even say the craziest part, so... The way that we positioned the art or the way that we positioned the exhibit, that has to, you know, you have to present that up to up the chain, right? You can't just like do things willy nilly because that's a further investment. So the weekend that I was watching Hamilton, crying my eyes out and also like really think about this thing, I put together a deck of um, that was 80 percent. This is why we shouldn't do this. It was like here. This is why this is problematic. This is why this could be perceived as racist this is why this could be perceived as insensitive this is why this could this is are all the ways this could go wrong and here are current examples of misguided attempts from brands to do what we're trying to do Mm -hmm. and then there was an addendum but if we do do this this is how we do it and then there was a one pager of artists that were essentially my rolodex of friends like these are people that we can trust to get it done and also, these are people that are from, you know, communities of color that are also locals. 
And also, these are the inspiration points that we have to lean into. And we can't make this about the brand. This has to be about the art, the community, and all these other things that matter right now here in 2020. And that went up to the CMO and even the the president, and everyone was very receptive. And it, it also gave us the runway to do creatively what we needed to do because after we got the thumbs up then the work had to get done and after that it was just you know sleepless nights for about two months <laughs> my god and so let me ask you right when you're creating this deck of yeah. the why we shouldn't do this yeah i read that as a multi-layered we yes right is it we mtv is it we as people who are not black is it we as you know who has the right to talk about this in that summer of 2020 where we're like everything is literally burning and why are we adding fuel to the fire right who has the right to be talking about this conversation and when you said when you talked about your antonia that because she was black you kind of had this like sense of okay cool now we are all on the same page because i know what your intentions are who's right. the we that we're talking who's the about? we it was the brand essentially and also the team like it and, you know, not for nothing, too, but you would hear, again, you go, you'd hear the horror stories about emails being passed around or being screen grabbed and said, like, from artists and potential collaborators, like, you want me to, to create what for what? It's like, essentially, trivializing Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. right? Trivializing BLM. And I would have, me and Antonia, we were coming at it from a space of how can we help and how can we transform a space so it was really wanted to be protective of not just the repu- our personal reputations because you know one slip or one wrong email all of a sudden it's lights out right mm-hmm. and it just goes everywhere but also it was for the brands like do we as a brand want to make this statement with a more trivial mechanic with a mm-hmm. more trivial creative inspiration point how do we make sure that we're being respectful and also doing something that at least brings some modicum of happiness or joy or calm to this crazy time right now right and i think the idea of like you know the intentions is one thing right Right. but the impact that you may have with all good intentions could be totally different oh god yeah and i think the idea that you just mentioned right how do we bring happiness and joy if that's the intention yeah that's with love that's with respect yeah right versus oh we're trying to elevate a brand at this crazy time right right? and i think coming from that perspective that's where it changes how it's being viewed right and i and i think that's really smart because you're giving the brand literally 80 percent of a way out right you're you're like look we don't and we shouldn't do this but if you're gonna do this right there's only one way Feels very end game-ish. There's only one outcome, and, <laughs> and this is the way we're gonna do it. I know I'm like Doctor Strange, like my head's vibrating. I'm just like, but it seems like then you're gonna trust us. Yeah, but you got to do it the way we say it's gonna be because of your reputations, because of what's gonna happen right. and potential what could happen. Right? right, like you can't even predict the future. And like you said, one screen grab, one this, one wrong tweet. Yeah, you know, and then. Everything shifts, right? Everything shifts, right. Right, because then that becomes a narrative. Yeah. The narrative's taken away from you because somebody else ran with it. Absolutely, 100%. And then, you know, me and Antonia became a part of the internal narrative of, you know, why this was important. It was it was a really special moment. I mean, it was, if I had hair, I'd be pulling it out, but <laughs> I'm, I'm so grateful that it went down like that because at the end of the day, the team was so supportive. I think they would all consider it like a solid, a 
a win sounds like it's trivial, but it was a win. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, in pulling from that personal Rolodex seems like an amazing Rolodex. We need to see that list <laughs> of people. But you've taken this mission of intersectionality and diversity mm-hmm. way beyond the visuals you produce and have created outlets and opportunities, right? You're the founder of the podcast First Generation Burden and the Colorful Grant with the One Club. Mm-hmm. I want to get into those definitely, right? Yeah. But when did you have this aha moment of noticing the lack of representation in the creative industry? Oh, I think I've always seen it, but just never vocalized it. You mm-hmm. know, I'm, I'm sure you see it all the time, right? And it starts early. It starts when, you know, starts in the academic space. It starts when you move from academic to professional, right? They're like, they're just a barriers and barriers and barriers, doors and doors and doors that are either open or not open to certain individuals. And, you know, those are things that I had always noticed that I never quite articulated. It really became really cogent to me in the Trump years, you know, like in 2016, right when Trump and Hillary were really going at it. And I was living in Oregon. Also, I was feeling a bit disconnected from my community because I just relocated from New York. I felt apart from my friends, my family. And there was all this really terrible rhetoric about the immigrant community specifically people from quote unquote shithole countries, right? Like all all that stuff. So that just hurts my heart, hurts my soul. And I wanted to respond to it, but in a way that was also productive, that not just, you know, created an an outlet for myself, but an outlet for my peers, because a lot of my peers are creatives who either immigrants, first gen immigrants, creatives of color. It was just, I felt that there was possibility in giving a voice to this wider community. So in 2016, I put together, or I, I assembled the first couple episodes of First Gen Burden, and they were, like, they were recorded very like loosey-goosey. The first one was with my dear friend, Ame Klink, co-founder of Sunday Afternoon, and then the second one was uh, with Warren Coles Pagan, also a co-founder of Sunday Afternoon. And they were done like hotel rooms and like echoey conference rooms, right? It's like the audio's terrible. But I, I sat on them for like a couple of months, didn't know what to do with them. And then fast forward to Trump winning on November 7th or whatever it was in 2016. And then I'm like, okay. Release, release, release. I know, yeah. It's just like, well, this is it. I I sat in bed thinking like, well, I need a level of catharsis. So it was release, release. And then became first season with six episodes. And then I started doing it with more regularity. And we're now we're on season eight. Yeah, we're doing 12 episodes this season. Shout out to Tim Simonson, who played with Gym Class Heroes. He's currently my producer, amazing partner right now. And we've had so many amazing creatives, like just released a Jeff Staple episode today. Talked to Ben and Bobby Hundreds, Melody Asani. Talked to Walt Gear. Talked to, let's see, about to, I was listening to an edit of the Mamadi Dambuya episode. Uh, he's an amazing photographer right now. He was one of the Forbes 30 under 30. So, it's really turned into like a wider community. And what I love is hearing not just the stories of creatives that, that have a journey, like explicitly a journey of how they got here, but also, you know, everyone has their own individual path. And a lot of my listeners are students, probably not unlike this podcast. And they like hearing the different ways in, and also, you know, those little asynchronistic (laughs) journeys that, you know, will help inform their own life path. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, when you think about, right, like the Rolodex and who you're able to to contact and, and have these stories, right? Season eight, right? And I did see today that the Jeff Staple 
and the read space and all of that, right? The pigeon dunks and all, yeah. I mean, things that Jeff is all about. You're in dunks right now. Yeah. yeah. Hell yeah. You know, like it's, it's just like that to me, it's just New York too. It's yes. just kind of like quintessential, right? Sneaker culture, just like what it was to like wait in line for, you know, a drop. Right. Yeah. Which, no one waits in line anymore. No, I was literally talking to a group of SVA students and we had this whole conversation about like sneaker drops and the whole craziness that bots control it now. Yes. But we're, we're, we're going off topic. <laughs> I could talk about that for hours too. I know, well, we, we should we should after. But out of all those stories, like eight seasons, right? I think yeah. today is 75. Yes. Right? Or Amazing. 76 today. Or, ooh, congratulations, 76. Thank you. What story still resonates with you today? Which one of those 76? And I know you've had more than 76, right? These, mm. are, you know, these are only the conversations that you've had recorded, right? You, you know, like this, we, you know, I've had conversations and I'm like, oh shit, I wish I would have recorded that conversation because that would have been an amazing thing to share with other people. But what stories... Yeah, you know, stick out to you from your eight seasons. One of my favorite stories, honestly, was from my friend Veda Partal over at Spotify. And she told the story of escaping Bosnia, Herzegovina in the 90s and living in um, as a refugee for a couple of years before she landed in the States. Then she landed in um, uh, like in, in the Midwest. And it, it was just such a a wild story that was also so unique and to see how she's all the success that she has now makes me think like wow who am i to complain about anything <laughs> she was also an architect this is really funny she was one of the creatives that ideated on the drake sprite ad where he his face opens up and oh, like yeah the total recall version <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. It's like the Transformer Drake ad. So I was like, wow, that, that was you. That's crazy. So like, you know, stories like that really resonate. I did a, a, a live MTV episode where, you know, one of the guests told a story there about being physically assaulted growing up in Russia. It was like, like so many, you know, it's like truly emotional where there wasn't like a dry eye in the room. Sometimes you get stories like that. And I'm thinking like, man, this feels like something that people need to hear because stories like this are valid, mm -hmm. you know, and also hearing just the creative journey of someone who's super talented and like kind of, you know, kind of plinkoing up, plinkoing vertically, you yeah. know, like those are really interesting too. Like I, I love hearing, let's see here, uh, Walt gear. So Walt gear, like he was like chief design experience officer of a female YNR. He's been at so many amazing places and he's essentially kind of talking about parlaying. He's parlayed every experience to something that's greater than some of his parts every single time. So, you know, he's someone who's amazing at that hearing those like, and to me, it's like a masterclass thing. Like I love, I keep trying to recreate my graduate school experience. Mm -hmm. So I just want to learn more, hear exactly. more, find out more, just not for my own edification, but you know, so other people can learn. Like those are the things that really stick with me. It's like, this is how like, like, well, one, every path is different Two, success can look like anything. Mm -hmm. It can look like anyone. And also three, when it comes to seeing representation in practice and also seeing leaders operate in a space that's so important for this emerging class of decision makers coming up. I get so many messages of like, wow, that was, thank you so much for that episode. This was a great conversation. I learned this from episode this, that, and the third. That type of energy is what keeps it going, even though content is so hard. <laughs> we had this conversation earlier. Yeah, content is it is tough. It's a very difficult thing to maintain. 
What's interesting is also you you talked about how the stories that you're hearing yeah. from the individuals, right, are impactful and how the audiences are going to be receptive to them. Mm-hmm. I also think that the story is important for the storyteller as a cathartic moment of yes. like sharing something that maybe in certain contexts they don't talk about, right? Like right. you're talking about first gen as a creative, right? Yeah. And and I think when we think of first gen creativity is usually not where we go with that because right. it's like most likely your parents came over for this better life mm-hmm. but to be doctor lawyer something that is understandable that will make money mm-hmm. right and creativity is never usually on that list right, right. so it, it also could seem to me just from listening to versions or even my own guests the ability for them to share this first generation story yes commingled with the creative story yes it goes back to what you're saying we exist in multiple locations right we're not just first gen and we're not just creative we're allowed to be both yeah and don't take that away from us yes absolutely i think it's about the multitudes and also you know that the complex identity that you're allowed to have and also really you know i love the idea of validating identity and not stigmatizing Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. so We've spent so many years, I think, kind of tamping down what makes us special, especially for designers. I'll say that designers, oftentimes, we said it before, they they step behind the camera, step behind the microphone, often recess into the, you know, into the inner workings, like, which is fine if one wants to do that. But, you know, I, I like the idea of being out there loud and proud, mm-hmm. kind of, you know, showing who you are. Yeah, why not? Definitely. Well, you're talking about this next generation of content makers mm-hmm. and, and decision makers, right? I want you to talk to me about this and it's a multi-layered <laughs> question, right? Yeah. Right. So I want you to talk to me about the colorful grant. Mm-hmm. I want to talk to me about your tie with Trey Seals, <laughs> right? And the one club, right? Yeah. We know you're a young gun winner. But I like who approached who? How did this come about? How it happen? Ooh, so 2020. It's crazy. Like 2020. So 2020 is like you're like. <laughs> Tw- I know. 2020 was a great year. No. Uh, well, honestly, like the I feel like the pandemic just was for some people it was a bit of an unlock by virtue of new opportunity that happened. Like just a, it's a bit of an aside. I realized that in the Zoom era. I had more access to rooms that I didn't have access to when I was physically in a space so that I could hear more about like what leaders were saying about certain things. I could hear more about how they were articulating certain things. Like it was harder when we were all physically together because certain rooms just would not be open. So the pandemic era was tough, difficult for so many reasons. If there was any sort of silver lining, it was that, that, the table that we all sit at was set slightly differently, mm-hmm. right? But going back to Colorful, so I, I had a relationship or I have a relationship. Shout out to Russell's Reserve. They're a <laughs> bourbon brand. They're part of the Wild Turkey family. I just, I had a wonderful time in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, touring the distillery over at, in uh, for Wild Turkey. That's I mean, what I need. I need to get a relationship like that. <laughs> totally. They reached out and it was a very straightforward creator partnership where Hey, Rich, we would love to partner with you on on social posts for the year. And a part of that partnership is, you know, not just creating content for us, with us, but also we would love to donate to 
a charity of your choice, you know, son of a community, a kind of a community give back. So I was like, interesting. And at the time I was like, Ugh, this sounds like another job, but it's actually ended up being so much fun. So they had, uh, they were like, Hey, we, we're going to donate $5,000. So I was like, okay, cool. What if we didn't donate it to a charity, but we donated it to, or we created a grant or a fund with a trusted partner, like the one club. And that went to creatives of color didn't have like the mechanic for it at the time, didn't have the framework or a structure for it. So they were like, hey, we love that idea. And then I reached out to Brett McKenzie over at the ADC, good friend over there. I've known him since he's joined the ADC. And, you know, they're the, the with the one club, they're, they're just homies of mine. So there were a natural reach out. I said, hey, I have $5,000 I don't know what to do with. I would love to set up like some sort of fund grant, even if it's just for this year. And then Brett was like, that's a great idea. Let's call it colorful. I was like, great, let's call it colorful. And then we set up the timing of it, like being a precursor to Young Guns, because Young Guns, you know, is like a, one of the preeminent portfolio-based emerging creators awards for multidisciplinary creatives, you know, especially in New York, but also with a with a global audience. And one of the gripes, and I agree with this gripe with Young Guns, is that for amount of time, the winners were almost exclusively white creatives, right? So that was a knock on Young Guns, and I think rightfully so. And I think that's criticism that was heard and felt by the ADC and One Club. Kudos to them. And they've done a lot of great work to turn that around and also just create awareness um, of not of the award itself within a wide swath of the larger creative community, right? So I think that's slowly shifting. But in my mind, I was like, well, we can always do more. And Brett is like totally aligned. So we turned it into a precursor to Young Guns, essentially mirroring the Young Guns submission process. So it's a portfolio-based award. And also there's a video submission component to it where you have to speak about identity and kind of like, you know, talk a little bit about what your intent would be for, for the grant. If you get the grant, it's like obligation free. You can pay your rent with it. I don't care, you know? Or, you know, you can give it to your parents. Like, that's cool. Either, either way, or put it to a passion project. So we put those measures in place, and then we made it a free submission, too. And for the reason for that was I love the idea of breaking down perceived barriers in elite creative awards. Because mm -hmm. when you're young, you don't have a lot of money to submit your stuff to. But in order to get more creatives of color into these elite awards, they have to, they, we have to start doing it earlier and feeling safe in the process, mm -hmm. right? So that's what Colorful was there for. And, you know, Russell's Reserve was was great about putting that together. Then for the first year in 2021, Sean Wang won the award. It was a 3K award. He's an amazing filmmaker. And this year, our second year, we had four winners and four cash prizes. There was a 3K for the first prize. Well, it was won by Danica Tan Lejeune. Second prize with 2K was the filmmaker uh, Sebastian Hillis Brand. And then uh, there were two, four, no, two 1K winners for third place. And also, you know, two people won Young Guns and also two people won Young Guns the year before. Like, and next year we're going to do it again. And there's more, more funds coming in. So next year we've already gotten commitments from, let's see, Sunday afternoon. They're going to commit a, a nice lump sum and also Menno Cluen, the CCO of Ogilvy, he's, mm -hmm. co he's committing and now Russell's reserve is going to come in again. And I'm going to come in again from personal funds. We're just going to keep going for it. Nice. Nice. It sounds like an amazing opportunity. And I, I love that 
building the model of what the Young Guns does, but also making it free to enter. Yeah. Because I think with all these design schools, right, in the country, public, private, yeah. you know, HBCUs, HSIs, right? It does feel like competitions is really access driven by who can afford to get in. Yes. Right. Absolutely. And I, and I think that's especially such for black and brown communities. Yeah. And yeah. And this is geared towards BIPOC communities like black and brown, indigenous, people of color, inclusive of Latinx and mm-hmm. AAPI. Like that's really our target audience. And uh, for those emerging creatives, multidisciplinary under the age of 30. Mm-hmm. So usually with those type of schools. Yeah the connections to these industries, right? Like an HBCU or HSI's connection to the one club may not be as great, right? right? As compared to these these larger schools, right? right. So, so the pipeline is not there sometimes, right? And what it is, and even in our school, right? It really depends on faculty who know about these things being mm-hmm. the one who shares this opportunity, but it's not this like systematic approach that when the young ones comes out or young gun awards come thing come out, right. it is part of curriculum. It is this. We're all going all in right. onto that. How do you think something like colorful or at least connections with the one club can help bring more exposure <laughs> to those type of smaller schools who you're actually trying to get more stuff from? Yeah, well, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think that first step is really, you know, working with the faculty, working with the faculty so that the faculty, like, you know, start making it a part of curriculums or like, you know, mentioning it essentially. Like, what is that log line? What is that elevator pitch that can, you know, codify what colorful is and also like kind of outline the opportunity, right? I think that's key. And I think also within the other sub chapters that are part of the one club. So the one club is also inclusive of the art directors club and also the type directors club. I'm probably forgetting like one other old, like New York club associated with it. Right. I think it's the, yeah, the ADC, the type directors club, the one club one club. I think that's, yeah, that's all they've taken over so far, yeah. <laughs> which is a oh, lot. Oh, and one show is what they used to be. Yeah. One show. Yeah. One show. show. Yeah. And yeah. So I think those other sub communities are key in, in communicating it to the individuals that qualify. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think that's really part of the issues that I tend to see is just that the pipeline being that like right. barrier, right? And so it's like without even knowing about it exists, it can go over your head because it's there for you, but you're just not aware. Absolutely. And that's the thing. It's like we want everyone to apply. We want to make it hard on the judges, <laughs> you know, put them to work. And all the judges are, at least last year, past two years, all former Young Gun winners as well a jury of of their peers also all jurors uh, who are creatives of color also multidisciplinary so we're really trying to have a level of rigor on the curation side the jury side that is in line and in league with the other awards of the one club that's great because i also think with that there's a shift in what is considered good yes work right I'm, I'm air quoting right now because what is good work and who who deems certain things good quality right how is it right. viewed based on the old european western canon versus all of these things that we all talk about oh my God, you're hitting me you're giving all my trigger words <laughs> right right canon western <laughs> european boom, eurocentric <laughs> yeah but you know how do we now look at something that traditionally from other people we're judging would look at it and go, oh, that that looks rudimentary. That doesn't look this. Why are the colors clashing a certain way? And yeah. as younger people who are understanding who are bringing culture into the way they do their art form, their design, their thought process, right? right you're allowed to explore and say, 
there's something there. There's rawness there Absolutely. that we need to. And culture is an input. Right. I think we're only realizing now that culture is an input. Right. But you don't realize that until you're in that position of power right. to make those decisions and look at a body of work and go, oh, this is something else that they're bringing in from nothing that they'd learned in school, nothing that they right. learned here. You know, it has nothing to do with grids and hierarchy and the typography that was, you know, like you said, the Helveticas of the world. It's right. something totally like instinctual. Right. It just kind of comes with the territory for them. Right. And they're trying to show that. And they just need somebody to be able to say, oh, we see you. Yes. And it really is about that. Like, oh, we see you. Also, yes, your culture is valid. And the thing that I've always hated about the traditional Eurocentric lens that tends to shut down or tamp down individual culture and also, you know, essentially the creative work of people of color is that when Culture is a part of the creative, like intrinsically tied to the creative. And then a Eurocentric opinion or a Eurocentric trained eye essentially unvalidates or kind of casts that creative aside. You're telling someone that their culture isn't valid. Mm -hmm. And that part just has never sat well with me. And I love the idea of opening up that aperture of influence so that we can say like, yes, these are just as valid as what we have here thought of as tradition. And there's a whole community of practitioners that are also, that speak that language. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just interesting to now have this language that we all understand and take away from the fact that like, Design now intrinsically does have a signature yeah. in the sense of either your culture coming out and your style coming out and things like that, where the Eurocentric model was to strip that all away, mm -hmm. right? It was about the client. It was about the work, yeah. right? You may have known some of the high-end people who did it, but it was really... You know, you yeah. knew that because of a specific style and it was yeah. kind of a clean, right? That yeah. whole like, like you know, refinement. It was. Yeah, it wasn't. But now it. it's about being like, oh, this is this person's work who happens to be a designer. That's awesome. Right. Before it was like, oh, it's the brand. Right. It's it's Wyden Kennedy. It's YKNR. It's all these right. people. It's like, no, no. Now it's it's the individuals who are bringing that level to this brand that they happen to have all this power and, and influence with that are now working with that. Yes. Right? I love the way that's shifting from just big brands and, and agencies mm -hmm. to the individuals who are then representing those big brands and agencies. Yeah, absolutely. We're getting there. I know. Slowly well, but surely. Slowly. Well, it needs people like you to keep on pushing that envelope. As we're closing up, and I, I think this is going to be like my Maurice episode where I can literally talk to Rich <laughs> for forever. As an artist, mm -hmm. designer, and practitioner, what is something new that you want to explore creative-wise? You know, I've been thinking about it a lot lately. I want to do, I haven't done a show in a long time. Uh, essentially like a self-curated show that, you know, straddled the line between design, fine art, and also technology. So I think that's something that I'm probably going to try to push in 2023. Uh, I've been thinking about a series that would also be illustrative, typographic, and maybe have like an AR lens component to it. Mm -hmm. So that's a bit of a tease. If I could give you a vaguer tease. But in terms of like something that I've just never quite done before ever. Oh, man. I Probably gaming. I would love to, you know, tackle that that industry in some way. I mean, I've 
dipped a toe. I've done a couple things in it, but I want to do something that's very entrenched in a narrative experience within a game. Mm. Mm. You know? All right. All right. Yeah. If there is one, yeah. what shift are you seeing currently in the creative industry? I think there's a culture shift. I think the way that we look at authorship and also the validity of influence, right? Like like everything that we just talked about. I Also, what else is there? I think the general practitioner shift is like a meteoric one where now a lot of designers are willing to be personality forward, but also willing to be product designers, typographers, illustrators, kind of attack it from a, several different angles. So we still have specialization, but the general practitioner, I think a lot of kids are coming out of school now with that approach and willingness to to push it there. What else is there? I think there's also the general shift of a lot of newcomers or a lot of emerging creatives wanting to go brand side, start brand side. Before it was like agency side, like let's fuck shit up with, with an agency that's willing to be disruptive. But I think a lot of young kids are actually want some type of stability that that a brand can give them i mean i'm the sick bastard that left stability and went back agency side because i wanted a thrill you know so i don't know what what do you see happening like you're closer to it when it comes to young i think i mean i think the shift is kind of owning your own story yeah i think a lot of it and some of the things i teach is really being you know we're the people that they're marketing to Right. Yes. But the fact is that the, we're not usually the people who are in control of that marketing. And a lot of that stuff is is me trying to advocate for people to bring themselves as much as they can right. to these stories that they want to tell, because then you can push the unique narrative that you understand right. versus the narrative that maybe only sells more milk, you know, right. You understand the cultural reasons why we need this versus just the bottom line. Yeah. And so I think the shift is is just the way we need to approach that we shouldn't just be people who do the work on behalf of other people. Yeah. We should be doing the work on behalf of what we think is important. Yeah, no, I agree. Do you see that a lot of the students in your class now have embraced entrepreneurship? I'm seeing that so much more now. I think they do because of how social and things allow you to like be brands. Yeah. But I think the problem is sometimes is that it looks so shiny and perfect that they don't understand what goes into it. And so it seems easy and Mm -hmm. attainable and it is, but it's also a lot of hard work Yeah, and behind the scenes, right? That we don't get to see. And that to me is always the problem with social is the veneer that's put up of what it's supposed to look like yeah, versus the hours and ages that it takes to actually create that 10 seconds of content, that 30 second commercial, that two minute little video, you know, or even the, you know, the VMAs, even though it took you 72 hours to do like whatever approval process, whatever, but you said it was two months of you know, just intense, yeah, intensity. intense intensity, right? So somebody hears, oh, I can do that. That's cool. I can, And I'm like, no, no, no. Two months of intense things where you're also putting yourself out there. You're risking your reputation with yeah. clients, with friends, with fellow right. creators. Within the organization too. It's like, <laughs> you're right. yeah, you're, it's basically swimming upstream or your roller skating uphill yeah. so, so often. Yeah. So I, th- I think those are the things. It's the entrepreneurial nature is there. 
but because of the lack of understanding of how much things actually cost, mm -hmm. understand, take time, there's a disconnect. And I think the more people like you or other people start to inform students what it really is to do the work. Yeah. That's where it takes, right? Because like you said, your podcast is probably being listened to by students such as mine, I hope as well. And the fact that learning from those stories is where you get to understand, okay, I could get there, but it's going to take me some time. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And I think one of the things I, I just, I hear in your story is, you know, it all falls into place. You know, you've mentioned you had some struggles and you mentioned that understanding that the lack of diversity was always put in your face, mm -hmm. right? But the story you tell is very like, hey, it all kind of just worked out. Yeah, well, I mean, but that's also like the veneer, like the polish at the end. Like, who knows? Like, who still knows? <laughs> at the end of the day, like, there's still more highway to drive. Right, but it just seems very, very lucky and fortunate the way that your dad being an architect right. and you understanding that and coming into it. I think you said you had a brother-in-law who was already at an agency, right? right? So like yeah. those things aligned for you that you were able to parlay. And it seemed not yeah. that you didn't put the work in. That's definitely because you just said you, had, you spent three years in night school to, you know, go to, you know, oh, to, yeah. but yeah. I mean, it just seems like that's a smooth, smooth as a, you know, air quotes term, but like a smoother transition. And a lot of people would say who don't have that same access at an early age. Yeah who are roller skating up a hill. Right. You know, For like I, at almost every, yeah, you know, you're totally right. It's like, I'm super fortunate in that there was the barriers for me were slightly different. They, they, and I found a way to navigate the barriers, but there were a lot of open doors too, you know? So it, I've kind of made it one of my life's missions to create more of those open doors and also to set an example of like what is possible. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's amazing. That's amazing. Cause I think that, that is a testament to all the things that you're doing as being why you're doing them, right? Understanding where it came from and how to shift that into how to move those things. So lastly, yeah, I'm starting this new ending to my show where I'm, <laughs> I'm calling it Pay It Forward. Okay. Right? And so who do you think I should have on the show? And what one question about their process should I ask them? Oh, whoa. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. Man. Is this like... Is this Rob Deerdick's fantasy factor right now? Can I just throw toss out any name? Do whatever. This is this is all you. <laughs> Let's see. One person you could have on the show. And what would one question about their process should I ask them? Basically from you. If I yeah. were to get to talk to them and I'm like, hey, Rich wanted me to ask you this. Yeah. Okay. Damn. I would want to talk to Jim Cameron. Maybe because I I love entertainment and I love film and you know i don't even think jim cameron's the greatest filmmaker of all time i just he just top of mind because i was thinking about avatar 2 the way of water earlier today i don't even care about the movie but i'm interested in watching it just because i feel like some sick obligation to be aware of pop culture so i would want to talk to jim cameron but also i'd want to ask him essentially what is the line that that he's willing to cross for filmmaking. Cause you hear all these stories about a guy like him, like almost killing his actors, <laughs> you know, just going way over the top on a product that he's super passionate about when maybe a lesser filmmaker would have relented. When even for avatar two, he's like, for this thing to break, even it has to be like one of the top five grossing films of all time. So the bar is pretty high. <laughs> Like where that is the level. Can you imagine that level right. of pressure? 
for a human being. And he's like, I don't give a shit. They're crazy. Isn't that crazy? So I would love to get a peek into his mind and hear like, what is the level he's really willing to cross if there was no holds barred mm-hmm. in terms of filmmaking? Yeah. That seems intense, right? Where you're, where, I mean, he's also put that level upon himself, right? Yes. If, if he's like, I have to be the top five grossing yeah. film, right? And I know he's done it before, yeah. but it's, but it's like, he's now, like Dr. Dre though. Yeah. It's like, remember Dr. Dre was like, after the chronic, after the chronic 2001, after the, like, it's like the pressure on top of Dr. Dre, like the pressure on top of James Cameron. It's like, he, it's, it's only been up and he hasn't had a shit movie like we have we don't really think about it he hasn't had a bad movie yet can you imagine right right but he also doesn't do that many movies now he doesn't right right so the level right the escalation <laughs> like even a person like martin scorsese is willing to experiment do things that are somewhat misses you know but yeah no do like james cameron it's like all right <laughs> all right it's like what does your brain look like yeah literally can we dissect this and just kind of see what it is yeah and how things operate and where things pulse and like yeah you know because there needs to be some sense of bravado to be like yes. i need to put that much that amount of pressure on myself yes to make this a success yes like a kubrickian level of like intestinal fortitude yeah but kubrick was like I don't give a shit whether you watch this. Like, fuck you. Yeah. You know what I mean? But James Cameron's like, everyone has to see Yeah, well, this. has to watch this because otherwise then I am a failure. Yeah. We're probably long, but what advice would you give a younger self? I don't believe in advice. And that's always my preface for when I do give this piece of advice. Uh, <laughs> I believe that you should chase your curiosity. Like everything we talked about. Chase your curiosity because passion is the thing that's going to be your driver in this industry. There's so many barriers and not even like the barriers we were talking about that are for all the, that essentially shut out communities, but um, like barriers of like just the normal everyday barriers mm-hmm. of a difficult client, of difficult feedback, of a project that maybe just not may not be what you want to work on right now. There's all that normal stuff. So really you get out of this industry what you want to put in, right? And if you're not chasing your passion and if you don't love what you do, then really this may not be the industry for you. So I would say pursue that passion with passion and do it in earnest. And, you know, if you have the energy to do the legwork, do as much as possible. And that's something that I've always stuck to. And that's helped me parlay my own career into something that has a modicum of success today. And I hope to continue, you know, just to kind of do my thing and do what I love. Mm-hmm. So what's up next for Rich too? What do you, t- tell the listeners where they can find you and, and all the things you're up to. Okay, so let's see. First Generation Burn, the podcast. It's a series of conversations with creatives, uh, immigrants in the creative community. That is in, currently in season eight. You can find that anywhere you find podcasts and also colorful, colorful awards, uh, year three in 2023. So be on the lookout for that. You know, we really want to, you know, put the judges, put the jury to work. Really, truly, it's free entry. As long as I'm involved, it will always be free entry. I don't give a shit. It's good to know. Yeah. So, you know, and please do it. it it's an amazing opportunity to not just kind of uh, enter these types of awards, but also be seen by a jury of your peers. And uh, let's see, check out some of the work at Jones Knowles Ritchie, uh, where I'm currently a group creative director. 
And uh, what else do I have coming out? Uh, buy Mini Cooper. <laughs> buy Mini Cooper. Yeah, uh, well, those roofs are still available. So check out Mini Cooper. And I think just Google my name and Mini Cooper. And I'm sure there'll be some sort of link to purchase. I think those cars actually start hitting the road at some point this winter, which will be exciting. I've seen some of the rooftops actually get like, you know, placed. And I, I know that there's a bit of a back order. I'm doing a small capsule collection for Reebok in 2023 for the 50th anniversary of hip-hop and that's i think uh some t-shirts and maybe a sneaker piece i'm not 54 sure 54 11s you gonna do a bunch of those <laughs> uh i don't know like it's an active conversation so i did see like the final like t-shirt capsule and like some of my pieces in there like look pretty dope so um nice. but yeah if you want to find me Rich too. You can find me on social media for the most part at rich underscore tu, and find First Gen Burn the podcast at First Gen Burn one word on Instagram, and that's where I'm most active. Awesome, George. This has been amazing. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much, Rich, for all the gems, the side conversations, the segues, the the slight interview of me. I love that. <laughs> I was like, wait, am I the one doing this podcast, or is am I on Rich's podcast? Um, <laughs> you know, I I really love to hear the way you were able to honestly, as you say, parlay and connect one thing to the next. And it seems yeah. very natural how these client collaborations or moving from different agencies in-house to, you know, agency side, um, wanting to deal more with the creativity. I mean, the craziness actually, and, and the energy and how you're just driven by the love and passion for what you do. So Thank you so much. I really enjoyed that. And once again, it was an amazing way to be back live and, and, and being face-to-face rather than just Zoom. So thank you so much for this conversation. Awesome. Thank you, George. This has been Works in Process. Once again, I want to say thanks to Rich for venturing to City Tech and chatting with me today in the Pearl Building. He's been blending how designers and artists are being represented via their work and their stories. Rich advocates for diversity and community, and it's prevalent in the projects he produces. He's changing the way creatives are viewed and who's being seen. And I just wanted to say thank you. If you want to learn more about the various projects, people, organizations mentioned in our conversation, please check out the show notes in our podcast player or the website wip.show. The Works and Process podcast is created by me, George Garistegui Jr., the content and transcriptions have been reviewed by Orr Schifflinger. And this episode has been produced and edited by RJ Basilio. You can find the Works and Process podcast on all media platforms, such as Apple, Spotify, Google, and more. And if you liked the episode, feel free to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and or Spotify. And if you're extra generous, write a review. It really helps. And just subscribe on whatever player you're listening to right now. It's that easy. Follow us on Instagram or LinkedIn to stay up to date on new releases of every episode. I appreciate you taking the time and journey with me and hope you enjoyed this conversation. Until next time, remember your work is never final. It's always a works in process. Mm-hmm.